Alright, are you familiar with the name Ron Burgundy? Maybe you are. The man, the myth, and the legend. He's the lead character from a really absurd comedy called, majestically enough, Anchorman, The Legend of Ron Burgundy. Now, before I say any more about this movie, I need to make a couple big discretions, since I'm speaking from the pulpit, first of all. This movie has swearing, has sexual humor, it even has the most hilariously lethal street fight scene you'll ever see. Uh, so it's not one that I could responsibly recommend for you. But considering it's one of the most well-known and most frequently quoted comedies of all time, it's a safe bet that you're at least passingly familiar with Will Ferrell's most iconic movie character. I haven't seen this movie in a long time. But if you've never seen it, let me fill you in a little bit. The fictional Ron Burgundy is the most famous TV news anchor in San Diego in the 70s. It's all fake. Most of the humor of the movie doesn't come from the jokes themselves. Most of the humor comes from the fact that all the characters are idiots who think that they are influential and important and iconic. We don't laugh at their masculine swagger. We laugh because their masculine swagger only serves to underscore just how ridiculously buffoonish they are. And none more so than Farrell's Ron Burgundy. The title even plays off this comedic approach. Uh, having the subtitle The Legend of Ron Burgundy is very intentionally cheeky to undermine the fact that he's just a ridiculous person. So even though it's crass, it's actually the movie's actually a fairly powerful statement, a uh, fairly powerful satire, a takedown of celebrity and masculinity and misogyny. All those things get skewered and roasted in the movie. And that's the background of the audio clip we're about to listen to, which should make sense whether you've seen the film or not. But Do you know who I am? Do you know who I am? No, I, I can't say that I do. I don't know how to put this. But I'm kind of a big deal. Really? People know me. Well, I'm very happy for you. I'm very important. Uh, I have many leather-bound books, and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. <laughs> <laughs> oh, it's so stupid. Everything about the scene is designed to make Ron Burgundy look and sound like a total doofus. He's... He's wearing an orange bathrobe with his disgusting little curly chest hair sticking out at the time. Uh, the woman refuses to acknowledge his self-proclaimed importance and fame. She's very dismissive. And though every word he speaks is intended to sound smooth and sensual, it instead comes across as desperate and pathetic. Do you know who I am? People know me. I'm very important. I have many leather-bound books and my apartment smells of rich mahogany. What a stupid thing to boast about. He is impressing no one. He is actively realizing that maybe, just maybe, all his accomplishments and all his reputation and all his prowess and all his celebrity status mean nothing to the object of his desire. And the key line is right in the middle of the clip. I'm kind of a big deal. He certainly seems to believe he's a big deal. She doesn't seem to be buying it, though, and he just digs himself deeper and deeper into a hole the harder he tries to impress her. Being a big deal doesn't seem to be such a big deal, does it? It turns out he should be saying it with sarcastic air quotes. I'm kind of a big deal. Oops. Well, though Ron Burgundy is a fictional news anchor from San Diego who's designed to solicit our laughter, he actually has a lot in common with the Apostle Paul, at least in our passage today. Paul was a big deal in his world. He was a big deal as a hotshot rising star among the ranks of the Pharisees. He was a big deal as chief persecutor of those troublemaking Christians he was a big deal as the first apostle to the Gentiles, starting churches and expanding the kingdom all throughout the Roman Empire. He was such a big deal that centuries later, only Jesus himself 
has a bigger influence on our faith today. And that was without having any apartments of his own that smelled of rich mahogany. He was still able to accomplish all of that. But in today's passage, Paul will address that big deal status from a variety of angles. Some things about Paul are like Ron Burgundy's puffed up self-confidence. All it amounts to is big deal. It's a sarcastic air quotes big deal, which proved to be meaningless in the end. Other things are more questionable. They have some importance, but how big a deal are they? And that's the second one with the question mark. And finally, in the end, Paul will fill us in as to what is truly the biggest of all deals, the ultimate big deal, which we as God's children must embrace if we're to experience life in its fullest. So what's the big deal? Well, let's find out. We're going to read Philippians 3 verses 1 to 11, but we're going to read verses 1 to 6 first. Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. It is no trouble for me to write the same things to you again, and it's a safeguard for you. Watch out for those dogs, those men who do evil, those mutilators of the flesh. For it is we who are the circumcision, we who worship by the Spirit of God, we who glory in Christ Jesus and who put no confidence in the flesh, though I myself have reasons for such confidence. If anyone thinks he has reasons to put confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews. In regard to the law, a Pharisee. As for zeal, persecuting the church. As for legalistic righteousness, faultless. We'll stop there for now. This passage seems out of line with the rest of the book, especially the the pure vitriol that he he spews out in verse 2 against the Judaizers. Philippians is the book of joy and unity, but here Paul seems to set out to absolutely dismantle these enemies of the gospel with some of the harshest language imaginable. It doesn't sound very joyful or unified. And yet the passage begins, like the entirety of the letter, with a call to rejoice. Paul calls his Philippians to rejoice in the Lord before reminding them of past warnings he's given them regarding Judaizers. Do you know what Judaizers are, by the way? Anybody? Judaizers are false teachers who seek to enforce the Jewish laws and regulations upon Gentile Christians, saying you need to become Jewish and follow the Jewish law before Jesus can save you. That's what the Judaizers did. So the rejoicing seems a little out of place beside the stern warning of verse 1 and the harshness of the name-calling in verse 2. He says rejoice, and then he calls them dogs, evildoers, mutilators of the flesh. By the way, that's why there's dogs in this picture and garbage, in case you didn't put that together. But in fact, the call to rejoice fits perfectly in this chapter, or in this context. It continues a thread that's run throughout the whole letter so far. In chapter 1, Paul spoke of rejoicing despite his chains and despite his oppressors. He spoke of rejoicing in the face of possible martyrdom. In chapter 2, he spoke of rejoicing in the midst of the Philippians' many sacrifices, which probably included death for the name of Jesus Christ. He spoke of joyfully welcoming Epaphroditus, who had fallen deathly ill and had to be released from his appointed task of taking care of the apostle. So in all those rough situations, Paul says, Rejoice. And now, in chapter 3, Paul again speaks of rejoicing, and again, it's in the context of suffering and hardship and trouble. This time, the trouble and the suffering and the hardship is at the hands of those who would seek to impose their arrogant and their anti-gospel beliefs upon the believers in Philippi. That's the trouble. In other words, in the book of Philippians, wherever you find suffering, you also find rejoicing. And whenever you find rejoicing, Rejoicing, you also find suffering. 
They are very much meshed together in the book of Philippians. So take that information and do with it whatever you need to do with it. But in Philippians, rejoicing and suffering go hand in hand. But from rejoicing, Paul then turns his harsh warning to watch out for the Judaizers, who he characterizes with this brutal crescendo of insults that the NIV attempts to preserve with those dogs, those evildoers, those mutilators of the flesh. One commentary I read used a devastating alliteration. He says, beware the curs. So a cur is like a stray wild dog. Beware the curs, beware the criminals, beware the cutters. And I like that, so I'm going to use that. They are curs because like the stray dogs mentioned in Psalm 59, the Judaizers are snarling like dogs and prowling around the city, wandering about for food and howling if not satisfied. That's what Psalm 59 says. That's how those dogs behave. The snarls and howls of the Judaizers are their incessant calls for the Gentiles to become Jewish like them before they can experience salvation. Isn't that a very human thing? You have to be like me if you want to be, if I'm the good one. Be like me first. Their food, the food for these dogs, is the selfish pride that they have in their own Hebrew heritage. And they eat their fill of Hebrew heritage before prowling for more. To Jews, dogs were unclean creatures, which is why they often use the term to describe Gentiles. Many Jews called Gentiles filthy dogs, because a dog was a filthy animal in their world. Here, Paul turns the tables. Now the Gentiles are pure and clean, but those who would force circumcision and Judaism upon the Gentiles are the filthy curs. He switches it. Like stray dogs, the Judaizers are unwelcome nuisances and low-life scavengers, and there is danger in both their barks and their bites. Next, he calls the Judaizers criminals or evildoers because they have rejected the means for righteousness described by God. Once the means for righteousness was the law, In the Old Testament, that's how you became righteous, by staying as close to and following the law as closely as you can. Righteousness was found in the law. Those who followed the law were wise and virtuous. Now, however, righteousness is found only in knowing Jesus. That's the only way we can be righteous, is in Jesus. Those who lead others toward a worship of rules and customs and legalism, rather than a worship of the Lord of grace and freedom and living sacrifice, Those who worship rules rather than Jesus are guilty of leading people towards unrighteousness. They are leading people away from right relationship with God. They are, therefore, guilty of the greatest of all crimes. There is no crime greater than to lead people away from Jesus. And because they are doing that through their legalism, through their Judaizing, they are guilty. They are evildoers. They are criminals. Thus, they are evildoers as well as dogs. And finally, the Judaizers are cutters, mutilators of the flesh, which is a really harsh term, who put their hope and confidence and identity in a physical sign rather than a spiritual one. If you're not familiar with with um, the Old Testament, then all this talk about circumcision must sound very strange. It's a very weird thing. But circumcision had been the identifying mark of those who belonged to God since the time of Abraham, at least since Genesis 17. So right at the very beginning of the whole Bible, the mark the physical mark that identified you as a person of God was circumcision. But that was merely a cutting of the flesh. In the end, that's not such a big deal, a cutting of the flesh, as it turns out, which shouldn't come as a surprise to the Judaizers. This is what Jeremiah 4 says. It says, Circumcise yourself to the Lord, circumcise your hearts, or my wrath will flare up and burn like fire because of the evil you have done. Burn with no one to quench it. So in the end, God doesn't desire a sacrifice of the flesh 
he requires a sacrifice of the heart. He doesn't want to leave a mark on our bodies. He wants to leave a mark on our souls. Like so many men for millennia upon millennia, the Judaizers are thinking with their crotches, which is what men have been guilty of forever, rather than their hearts. They put the, It's true. They think that that's what will save them and mark them. So they put their confidence in a physical mark, ignoring the deeper connection that mark is supposed to indicate. As with all sacraments, whether it's Old Testament sacraments like blood sacrifices or circumcision, or whether it's New Testament sacrifices like baptism and communion, the act does not save you. God is very clear in the Old Testament that I don't want your sacrifices. They mean nothing to me unless your heart is right. Your circum- That's what he's saying here. Your circumcision means nothing. It doesn't mark you as a, my child if your heart isn't right. So those sacraments, they mean nothing unless you're... you're the, it's the attitude behind the act, an attitude of submission and sacrifice and worship towards the God who orders those sacraments. It's submitting to the God who says you should be baptized, you should take communion. It's your attitude when you do those things that aligns you with the Lord Jesus whom you are committing yourselves to. That is what saves you. Not being submerged in some water. I get submerged in water every day. It's called a shower. It doesn't do me any spiritual good. It's not the dunking that does it. It's not eating bread and drinking juice that does it. It's your heart and your attitude behind it. The same was true or was supposed to be true for circumcision, but they got lazy, spiritually lazy. They thought, hey, the deed is done. I'm good. I'm saved. Me and my household, we're in. And God says, no, that's not enough. It's not nearly enough. It's not about missing some piece of flesh, especially, I might add, since half the population of the kingdom of God is unable to offer that particular piece of flesh in the first place. So in the end, circumcision does nothing for you. It's your attitude behind anything you do for God that's important. And so Paul warns against the curs, the criminals, and the cutters. But then he turns to the tables once again in verse 3. He says, for it is we, and that we is important because Paul circumcised Jewish Paul is identifying himself with uncircumcised Gentile Philippians. There is almost no Jewish people in the city of Philippi. Remember when when Paul first got to Philippi in in the book of Acts? There was no tabernacle to go to. He had to go down to the river where a bunch of women were worshiping. And that was the first church in Philippi, those faithful women. those They were the leaders in the church. And so when he says, for it is we, Paul is joining himself, Jewish circumcised Paul is joining himself with the former pagans, with the Gentile, uncircumcised Philippians. And he says, it is we who are the circumcision, we who serve God by his spirit, we who boast in Christ and put no confidence in the flesh. So the Judaizers, they think that circumcision makes them God's children. But the cutters don't understand true circumcision, the circumcision of the heart. And so Paul and his Gentile pals, they are the true circumcision. The criminals... The evildoers, they think that they are leading others towards God, but they only create separation from him. Paul and the faithful Gentile Philippians, however, they know of true service to God, which is only found in the empowering presence of the Holy Spirit. And finally, the curs, they bark endlessly and ignorantly about all the acts and deeds that they think will save them. Paul and the Gentiles in Philippi, however, boast only in Christ. And it's not a boast like how great I am, it's a boast how great he is giving Jesus all the praise and thanks for their salvation, rejoicing rather than demanding. 
The contrast between the misguided Judaizers and the faithful Gentiles is very, very stark. Paul turns the tables on all their arguments. They think they're so great, but what they think is great is their loss. It's going to lead to their spiritual death. It's going to lead to tragedy. But these faithful, Gentile, uncircumcised Philippians, they've got it right. Their mind, their hearts are in the right place. So Paul turns the tables. But the contrasts don't end there. Paul speaks of the Judaizers putting all their confidence in the flesh. And that's a very loaded term that's somewhat missed in our North American understanding. Flesh is a deeply theological, deeply symbolic term in both the Hebrew and Greek worlds. So both the Old and New Testament worlds. Flesh means something. And it doesn't just mean skin. It signifies all that makes us fragile and fallen. The flesh is everything that's weak about humanity, whether it's what makes us weak spiritually, what makes us weak emotionally and mentally, it's what makes us weak physically. All of that is captured in that one five-letter F word, flesh. Flesh is not inherently evil, however, since God created us with flesh, and since his son Jesus took on flesh in order to deliver us from our own fleshly nature. So it's not skin and being human and being having a physical self that is necessarily evil obviously when he says flesh he means all that makes us fallen and weak and small jesus's flesh i mentioned jesus took on flesh but his flesh included weakness too didn't it a self-imposed weakness and a weakness that never caved to sin but a definite weakness and frailty and brokenness that's what That's what scripture means when they say flesh. All that makes you weak and susceptible to sin. For the Judaizers, their entire hope of salvation and rightness with God was placed in the flesh. What do I mean by that? Well, in the literal flesh of the circumcision, but also the figurative flesh of human things. These are all fleshly things. Here's a partial list. Rules are fleshly things. Proper behavior is fleshly. Jewish ethnicity, which they put their hope in, is a fleshly thing. It's all flesh. It's all, to them, this big deal. It's this huge deal, all of these things. And it's into this context of the Judaizers Judaizers putting all their confidence in the flesh, all thinking they're such big deals, it's into that context that Paul offers himself as the ultimate contrast. Because if anyone would have reasons to put their trust in fleshly things, it's our friend Paul the Apostle. And his is quite a checklist. Here we go. Circumcised on the eighth day, meaning following the law to the letter? Check. Born among God's chosen people, the Israelites? Check. Born into the tribe of Benjamin? which, by the way, the tribe of Benjamin was the tribe that the first king of Israel, Saul, came from. It's a kingly tribe. It's an especially blessed tribe. Benjamin was the only other tribe besides Judah that stayed faithful to God. Israel, all the rest of Israel fell away, but Judah and Benjamin stayed true. Jerusalem, the holy city, is found in the territory of the tribe of Benjamin. So being of the tribe of Benjamin is this huge deal. And check, he is of the tribe of Benjamin. In summary, Paul says he is a Hebrew of Hebrews, someone who typifies the cream of the Jewish crop. But there's more attributes to check off. We're not even close to being done. Was he an elite member of the most hyper-religious group of elite legalists in all of Israel, the Pharisees? You bet. He was a great Pharisee, by the way. Was he so filled with legalistic Jewish fervor and zeal that he actively sought to crush those so-called Jesus people for their blasphemy? Check. He was so sold out 
to these this checklist that he sought to imprison and murder those who didn't fit his checklist. And finally, capping off the whole checklist in glorious spiritual hyperbole, you think those Judaizers with their worship of rules and morality are righteous? To that, Paul says, big deal, let me show you something. I followed every rule, every custom, every law, and every command right down to the letter. He was, in a word, faultless. Absolutely faultless when it comes to following the rules. He's not sinless, obviously, but faultless. He was ceremonially pure according to the human standards of adherence to the law. So he gets a big old check. None of those flesh-obsessed Judaizers can hold a candle to Paul and his former identity as a fellow flesh-obsessed Jewish fanatic. If they want to boast, Paul says, look at my list. You want to boast in the flesh? Check out my flesh list. It's huge. Paul is like Ron Burgundy in the end, however, listing all the traits of his past self. When I was a Pharisee, people knew me. I was very important. I had many leather-bound scrolls and my tent smelled of rich cedar of Lebanon. And in those self-obsessed traits, Paul says, I put my trust. I put my trust in those self-obsessed traits. In my own self-directed holiness, I put my hope. In my moral superiority, I put my salvation. In my fanaticism, I put my faith. Like the Judaizers, I worship things of the flesh, and I had even greater reason to be confident of my standing before God than they do. If anyone could be confident of their fleshly attributes, Paul says, it's me. I am the king of fleshly attributes. I am the king of worldly human traits. I was kind of a big deal, and I thought all those many things of the flesh were big deals too. However, that was then. That was his former self. That was his pre-circumcised self. Sure, he had a fleshly circumcision, but that's not a true circumcision that can help anyone truly know God. That's just a mark on the flesh, and the flesh cannot save us. All of that hope and faith and trust that he put in himself was misguided. It was all just a big deal, an air quotes big deal. It's a big deal kind of big deal, and it led him further from the Son of God. But don't take my word for it. Take Paul's word for it. Here's verses 7 to 11. But whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whose sake I have lost all things. I consider them rubbish that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God and is by faith. I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death, and so somehow to attain to the resurrection from the dead. By the way, in the Greek, that's all one big long run-on sentence. That's Paul. He is riffing hard. He is going, he's all in on this thing. All of those big deal gains of the flesh were actually losses because they led him further from Christ, not closer. They didn't help him know Jesus. They only helped him have a false sense of self-righteous superiority. They made him feel better than everyone else. And anytime you feel better than anyone else, you are failing at following God. All that blameless living, all that legalism, all that sterling reputation, all that zealotry, all that knowledge, all that moral uprightness, all that hard work and holiness and heritage, all of it, every last piece of it, was worthless garbage compared to knowing Jesus. That's a pretty impressive checklist. It means nothing. 
It's all empty. It's all worthless. Not just worthless garbage, actually. The word he uses in verse 8 is actually a vulgar term for excrement. He basically calls it bullcrap, to be somewhat vulgar myself. It's a word that literally means dog castings, which means human waste that only dogs will eat. It's a parting shot at the Judaizing dogs he condemned in verse 2. He calls all that huge checklist we saw trash, human waste fit for the dogs to rummage through and eat. All it, it means nothing. All those gains he strove for in his past life are now to be considered filth fit only for dogs to fight over. It is completely worthless to him because it could not bring him closer to Christ. Isn't that something? What a statement for Paul to make. All of that great stuff he pursued is garbage. It's rubbish. It's excrement. And so once he found Christ, he began to devalue all those good things of his past. That's where the big deal with the question mark, big deal maybe, that's where the big deal with a question mark in the title comes into play. Because isn't moral uprightness a good thing? And I'm asking, isn't it good to be a good person? We just read Matthew 13, where Jesus says, be a good person. Good things come out of a good heart. So isn't it good to be good? Isn't zealotry for God a good thing? Isn't faultlessness a good thing? Isn't proper behavior and strong reputation and diligent service all good things? Of course they are. So why does Paul call them filthy waste fit for the dogs? Aren't they a big deal? Are they a big deal? Well, yeah, they they are a big deal. Ethical living is a big deal. Proper theology is a big deal. Identifying with God's people by belonging to a community of fellow believers is a big deal. We don't belong to a Jewish ethnicity. We belong to a church, and it's a big deal. Considering that we are ambassadors of Christ who are filled with the presence of the Holy Spirit, every one of our thoughts, words, and actions is a big deal inherently. They're all big deals. Don't get me wrong, and don't get Paul wrong. He's not saying it doesn't mean anything to be good and to to follow to to follow the rules. He's not saying that's worthless in and of itself. It's just that there is something that's a much bigger deal, bigger than anything else listed above, bigger than ethical living, bigger than being thinking properly about God, bigger than having good thoughts and words and actions. Those are all important, but there's something that's bigger and more important. The biggest deal, the all caps big deal from the title slide is knowing Jesus Christ. That's the big deal. That's the biggest deal. In the end, that's the only deal that really matters. If we know Jesus as our Lord, then we'll obey him and submit to him and follow him. That's what it means to know him. Not just have an intellectual understanding that he existed once upon a time, but to really know, if you really know Jesus, how could you not follow him? How could you not submit to him? The basis of our confidence is Christ. He and he alone is our salvation. Rather than putting our faith in the flesh and things of the flesh, we put our faith in him. We put our faith in his suffering, which is our model for endurance and faithfulness. We put our faith in his holy death, which is our model for sacrifice and submission. We put our faith in his resurrection, which is our model for victory and vitality. We come more and more like him, not more and more like some worthless checklist that only makes us a slightly better, frail piece of garbage, which is what those checklists do. Trusting in Christ is life. Trusting in our own goodness is death. I'll say it again. Trusting in Christ is life. Trusting in our own fleshly goodness 
is death. It's garbage. It will never make us complete. In fact, it will never even get us halfway to completion because completion is only found in his grace and his resurrection. Righteousness of our own is just that. It's our own. Do we want our own righteousness or do we want his righteousness? Do we want a reward that lasts for our short time on earth and then crumbles and decays like the flesh that we're cased in, that we too often put our faith in? Do we want that righteousness where our reward is very temporary and then we're dead and gone? Or do we want a reward that resurrects after death, a reward that never rusts or fades or falters? A reward of power and life and eternity that begins here and now. Do you want garbage or do you want glory? Which one do you want? It's a big deal. In fact, it's the biggest deal. Which do you choose? So, to wrap up, there's two warnings here in Philippians 3. We, here in Clyde, won't have any Judaizers burst through the doors and try to convince all the men to lose their foreskins lest they burn in hell for eternity. That's not going to happen to us. That was a problem in Philippi. It's not going to happen here. But the warnings that Paul issues are just as stern. He's warning about Judaizers. But in warning about Judaizers, there's some pretty impressive warnings for us. So there's, I count two, and we'll end with these warnings. Warning number one. Beware of those who demand that you add or subtract from the core of the gospel as revealed in the person of Jesus Christ. There's people who will put all kinds of burdens of things you need to do along with your faith in Christ to be saved. And there's all kinds of people who say they'll take away certain elements of the core of the gospel and say that is what salvation is. So, no, Jesus isn't God. Take that away. You can just be a good person. That's enough. Take, take, take the Jesus right out of it. Beware of anyone who either adds to or subtracts from the core of the gospel. What is the core of the gospel? The core of the gospel is the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what the gospel is, no Jesus, period. I've heard people say that partaking in particular media or dressing a particular way or believing a particular thing about evolution or voting for a particular political party or meeting under a particular denominational banner, that any of those things are grounds for exclusion from the church. That's rubbish. That's garbage. Those are secondary issues. Secondary issues are important. I've tried to make that clear. I'm not saying they're unimportant. But they're not the biggest deal. The biggest deal is knowing Jesus. And you can know Jesus as a barefoot liberal evolutionist who listens to rap music just as much as you can know him as a straight-laced conservative creationist who listens to Shine FM. Trust me, I know people in both camps who love Jesus very much and I've learned from them both. You can be either. Those are secondary issues that for some reason we're obsessed with making the primary issues. I know excellent kingdom servants all across all kinds of spectrums who are role models to me. Why? Because they love Jesus with their whole hearts. And that's the thing that counts. You might say, how can you love Jesus with your whole heart and do this thing or believe this thing? Well, very easily. Never trust anyone who declares that salvation is a matter of these lesser fleshly human matters. They aren't. If they are demanding anything that Jesus doesn't himself demand, then they are barking dogs and they've already received their reward. I can't stress this enough. Beware of them. If they advocate exclusion from the kingdom based on anything less than faith in Jesus, that is a big red flag that their hope is in their own checklist, in their own fleshly desires, not in Jesus. Beware of them. 
There aren't many Christians declaring you must be a circumcised Jew to be saved, are there? Not in our world. In Paul's world, there were. But there are many who demand or demonstrate through how they treat people that you must be white, wealthy, Republican slash conservative, and morally perfect to be saved. Have you heard this? Have you seen this? Because I've absolutely seen this in our area that you have to think and be this way to be saved. Being those things is fine. They're good. Go ahead and be white. Be as white as you want. Go ahead and be wealthy, as long as you use it well. Jesus has some harsh things to say about that. Go ahead and vote to the right of the spectrum. I don't, but most of you do. That's fine. That's great. And be as morally perfect as you can. Be as ethically upstanding as you can. Do those things. That's all wonderful. But demanding them of others, requiring those things for salvation, is treachery. There are many such curs, criminals, and cutters in the church today. Beware of them. Beware of anybody who would demand you add things to the gospel or take away things from the gospel to be saved. Beware. Warning number two. Your righteousness can only come from one place, and that place is not you. It's him. You are not good enough. I'm sorry to say, I'm sorry to alert you to this. You are not good enough. Your good deeds are just stinking garbage at his holy feet. The best we have to offer is nothing. I'm not getting carried away. I'm being very biblical right now. The best you have to offer, whatever your checklist is, is filthy garbage compared to what he has to offer. I cannot stress that enough. Once we start thinking we're good enough, that is the first step to becoming like a Judaizer. That is the first step towards being a cur, a criminal, a cutter. When we think we're good enough and other people aren't, that's, that's where we get led astray. You are not good enough. The sooner you can acknowledge that, the sooner you can move on to living a life of faith in the one who paid the price to make your unworthiness completely moot. It doesn't matter. How unworthy you are. Jesus makes you worthy. And it's not because of anything you did. You're still scummy. I'm sorry. You are. I am. Especially I am. It doesn't matter how scummy you are, though. You should get better as the Holy Spirit works in you. But your worthiness is not what's at stake. You are unworthy completely. He makes you worthy. The sooner you acknowledge your own unrighteousness, the sooner you can find a life of freedom and grace and obedience that transforms our garbage we have to offer into gold. It's not that what we do is any better than a bunch of non-Christians out there. It's that in him, it brings him glory, and that turns it to gold. The sooner you can stop boasting about your fleshly things, your leather-bound rubbish and your mahogany-scented excrement, the sooner you can start rejoicing that you have been found and adopted by your heavenly parent, the sooner you are stepping towards Christ. The point is not to finish your checklist of human excellence. You never could anyway. But God's response to that checklist, that nonsense, is big deal. Big deal. So you did some good things. Who cares? Rather, the point is to know Jesus as Lord. That's the point. The point is to know Jesus as Lord, to step forward in faith, to experience his power, his goodness, his way, truth, and life. That is gain. The rest is loss. If you make it the only thing you're striving for. Again, the rest is all good. 
Jesus wants you to be a good person and bring glory to him through your word and speech and actions. That's all important, but it's not the most important. Anything we have to offer is ultimately garbage. It's no big deal. But being found in Christ Jesus, that's the biggest deal of all. No other deal really matters at all in comparison. So warning number two, your righteousness can only come from one place, and it's not you, it's him. So the question to ask of Jesus is, as a legendary prophet once said, do you know who he is? He is very important. I don't know how to put this, but he's kind of a big deal. That's the first thing you need to know of Jesus. Or, as a truly legendary prophet 2,000 years ago said to his friends in Philippi, what's more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. I consider everything else garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him. I don't think we, as comfortable North Americans, can hear this message enough. Beware of those who add or take away from the gospel with their rules with their beliefs, with their whatever. And beware that you're not making yourself the source of your own righteousness. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you for these people. I thank you that they are such excellent servants who know that they are only good because you make them good, that know they are only worthy because you make them worthy. I know that these are humble, servant-hearted people, and I thank you for them. But Jesus, help us to be on the guard against anyone who would demand certain things of salvation that you don't demand. Help us to be aware of all the ways that we make ourselves a little checklist to check off to be saved by you. There is no checklist that exists that could make us right with you. Only you, Jesus, can do that. We thank you for that. Thank you for lifting the burden of rules and regulations off us. But in the same vein, Help us to be the best followers of you that we can be. Help us to follow as close to you as we can so that the garbage we have to offer can be golden, so that we can give you the best that we have and it can be used for your kingdom. Help us become more and more like you, Jesus, to bring you glory. We pray all these things in your name. Amen. Do you know who he is? He is very important. I don't know how to put this, but he's kind of a big deal.